Uh, Acts 1, 1 through 5, let me read it here, um, and then I'll, I'll tell you kind of where we're headed for the morning. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Let's pray, guys. God, it's right on the surface of this text. Words still ringing in the air in this place. We can't do anything without your Holy Spirit. We can't accomplish anything for the kingdom, anything of any real eternal significance without your Holy Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, it's you we address right now. We ask that you would come in fullness. Jesus, we ask that you would pour out the Spirit in fullness afresh upon us this morning. We pray that we'd be a surrendered people, that we would not jam up the movement of your grace, the movement of your Spirit, but that we would let you flow freely in and through us, out to others. God, we pray that you would move. Where we need to be convicted of sin, convict us. Where we're holding too tightly to things, even good things that now have become idols. God, help us to release our grip. God, where we need comfort, encouragement in the dark night of the soul. We just feel like we're traveling through the valley of the shadow. Jesus, I pray that your spirit would comfort, would be the paraclete, the helper, the comforter. For my friends here, God, where we need power for ministry, where we're feeling weak and timid and scared, but since you calling us to something more, would you give us the strength? Would you give us the courage? Holy Spirit, come. Where we feel deadened to the beauty of your glory and the magnificent realities displayed in your word, of your grace, and your love, where we... we hear it and we don't feel it, would you soften our hearts and quicken our affections and help us to truly encounter you today, God. This is not just a Bible study. This is a worship service. We're worshiping you, even as we read, even as we talk, even as we study. We're meeting with you. So come, God, meet with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, okay, this is now part two of uh, what we began a couple weeks ago. Um, looking at, in particular, there in verse four, 
where um, uh, Jesus is talking about this promise of the Father. Uh, He's talking about this promise, and it's made very clear in verse 5 that this promise of the Father, which you heard from me, he says, is is ultimately the promise of the the Holy Spirit and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in in some significant way that uh, is going to happen through Jesus after his ascension and things. So it's the promise of the Spirit. And last time we looked at this promise more generally, uh, more broadly conceived, kind of just traced, okay, where did God actually say this in the Old Testament? If, if, if you heard this from the Father, where was it? And we kind of made our way into the New Testament from the promises of old. And now this morning, what I want to do is actually uh, home in on uh, this idea in particular of the baptism of the Spirit. So you saw it there in verse 5, Jesus mentions it, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. I just want to focus in on that phrase. I want to focus in on this idea of baptism in the Spirit. We're going to look at what is it? You know, wh- wh- how do we understand this? It's a complex notion. Indeed, I think it's a uh, Great significance for the Christian life is probably only matched by the great confusion surrounding it. You know, what is the baptism of the Spirit? Uh, that it's important uh, and, and, and perhaps central to uh, the life of the disciple. Uh, we can see that quite clearly. What it means, we haven't a clue. Um, I perhaps overstate the, the case, but it does seem to me in kind of researching and what little I have done on the subject, that every book offers some nuanced new opinion on the idea of um, what the baptism of the Spirit is. Even guys from my own tribe kind of vary little bits in there. Some fundamental similarities, of course, but nonetheless, confusion, and and the variants can be quite uh, uh, wide, and uh, some of you have perhaps even been, in my opinion, uh, misled and even wounded by the way that people have handled this idea of the baptism of the Spirit. Well, we'll talk about uh, perhaps some of that a little bit this morning. It's uh, a complex subject, but nonetheless very significant, so significant that Jesus would say to his disciples, don't you go anywhere until this happens. You need this that bad. Don't, even, don't go until you get this. Um, so I'm going to do my best, but... Uh, even as the renowned biblical scholar R.C. Sproul, if you ever heard of him, really smart dude, way smarter than me. Uh, man, as he, I, I was reading what he was saying on the subject, and he even opened up going, man, uh, I kind of feel like uh, when it comes to parsing through these matters, uh, I don't have a knife sharp enough. It requires a, a knife sharper than I own, right? In other words, I don't know how to sift it through, and I felt like that myself, and it just so happens that I like to cook with dull knives, so uh, I suppose that's all you're going to get. Uh, I, I hope I can be of some help, but um, uh, my ultimate aim, right, is that the Holy Spirit would be poured out in this place, that we would experience him afresh, or perhaps for the first time, um, that what Jesus accomplished for us uh, at the cross and in his death, resurrection, ascension, would be our, our full birthright as his followers. Uh, who have been united to him. So uh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to simply kind of organize my thoughts under two headings. Uh, First, what does it mean? You know, looking at this baptism of the Spirit, what does it mean? And then how do we get it? Spend most of my time, maybe even all my time on that first one. And then we'll, 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 uh, you know, drop out of the sky on that second one, uh, depending on what time it is. 
What does it mean? That's what I want to look at here. Uh, And the issue is so sticky that there is a lot to deal with. And I want to at least try to give you a handle on some of the issues. Um, Under this first heading, I really want to ask three um, more questions. Uh, so on our, on our kind of journey or on our quest for, you know, meaning here, there's three other questions that we really need to ask. The first one is this, what does this spirit baptism imply about the spirit's activity before the day of Pentecost? We've got to get this straight, I think, uh, right out of the gate. What, what does this baptism in the spirit imply about the spirit's activity before the day of Pentecost, before Acts 2, and what we're about to get into in uh, the next chapter in the book of Acts. Because Jesus tells his disciples, wait, don't go anywhere, the Spirit's coming, okay? That's my paraphrase. And you might look at that, and you might go, oh, goodness, okay, the Spirit is coming. What that means is the Spirit hasn't yet been here. Like, this is a you know, a new thing. The Spirit's kind of first entering the historical scene on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, 9 a.m. But to conclude, uh, such a thing would be a grave error. And I think this is the first thing we need to get right, is that the Holy Spirit's actually been active uh, from the opening pages of the Bible, as I showed you even last week, right? Let me just read you a few texts. There's so much I could do, obviously, but that's not going to be the main point of this sermon. But you remember Genesis 1, 1 and 2, right there on the first, in the first verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters right there in creation. Day 1, Holy Spirit active in the world. But not just in creation, also in redemption. As we come to read in the story after the fall of Adam and things, and then you see God beginning to redeem a people, the people of Israel, and it's amazing. Isaiah 63 is going to uh, use uh, the language of the Holy Spirit to describe what's happening in the Exodus and the wilderness journey and what God is doing. Listen to this. Isaiah 63, beginning in verse 11. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? He's talking about Israel. He's talking about the Exodus. Who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses. Who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name. Who led them through the depths. Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. He puts in their midst his Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord is giving them rest. The Holy Spirit is active. Creation, redemption, all the way through the Old Testament, even in a personal sense. And this is why King David, um, man, you guys probably know where where I'm going with this. If you're familiar with the scriptures, man, who can forget uh, that agonizing cry in uh, Psalm 51 when he's kind of realized his sin, awakened to his sin with Bathsheba and things. And he goes, he, he cries out to God, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now, as far as I read, I mean, you can't take from a person what you haven't, in some sense, at least already given to the person. So the Holy Spirit, it would seem, was already given in the Old Testament, already at play, at work in the world. 
it's quite obvious, even just from a few texts, that uh, Pentecost is not the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Like, woo! Like, checking his watch. Like, man, did I make it on time? I'm a little bit late, but I'm here now. No, he's been here all along. Perhaps the most compelling way to drive all this home is to simply show you how this is actually the case, not just in the Old Testament, but even when you look at Luke's two volumes. He's not trying to in any way portray the Holy Spirit as just arriving. He's been talking about the Holy Spirit all along the way in his Gospel of Luke and then now leading up into the book of Acts. And I'll just show you a few of these things quickly. All this in case you're stressed out because I got a lot this morning, as usual. Um, in case you're stressed out, all this is in, in, in my notes. In fact, maybe more than I'll even be able to talk about uh, will be online in the manuscript that should be on our homepage right now. So you can grab that. You can check these verses and things later if you're interested. Um, but you know, Luke 1.15, for example, speaking of John the Baptist, is amazing. This is the angel Gabriel, and he tells his father, Zechariah, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Luke 1.35, Gabriel's now speaking to Mary about Jesus, and he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Power of the Most High will overshadow you. Remember, this is decades before Pentecost that Jesus is telling his disciples to wait for, right? Luke 1.41, Mary comes to visit her relative Elizabeth, Zechariah's wife, and John the Baptist's mother. And, and we read this, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby John who was in her womb leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Active, filling, moving. One of my favorites is Luke 2, 25 to 28, and this guy Simeon. What an awesome guy. Jesus is being presented in the temple, and um, we're introduced to this guy by the name of Simeon. Luke describes him like this. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. Holy Spirit just all over this place. All over this man. It's amazing. Long before Acts 2, Jesus is only just coming onto the scene. There's all this discussion about the Holy Spirit and his work in people's lives and in this, you know, in, the, in this situation. And furthermore, in the book of Acts, actually, it's interesting. You go down to Acts 1.16, and, and we already get some indicators of how the people, the early church, even before the, the, the uh, Spirit, you know, was poured out, we're, we're thinking about the Holy Spirit's activity in the Old Testament. So Acts 1.16 Peter says this, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. So he's, they understood the scriptures to be inspired by no one less than the Holy Spirit, active, speaking through David and things. And then there's a very compelling uh, verse, last one I'll give you here, Acts 7.51 where Stephen is rebuking his fellow Jews for their rejection of Jesus, and he says this, listen, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the 
Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Did you catch that? The clear implication is, you guys are resisting the Holy Spirit now after Pentecost, as Peter talked, or as Stephen talks there, after the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, you're resisting him, but you're resisting them just like your forefathers did before Pentecost, resisting the Holy Spirit, right? So clearly there's activity of the Holy Spirit in the world, and we're not to understand uh, him arriving on the scene, 9 a.m., the morning of Pentecost, all of a sudden, Jesus is pouring out the Spirit and, 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 and he gets to work. No. That's not what we see. That's not what Jesus is implying when he says, wait, don't go anywhere. The Holy Spirit's coming. He's not trying to imply that the Holy Spirit hasn't already been here. So the question that then presses itself upon us is this. What's the point then? Right? I mean, why wait? I mean, what's the point of this baptism of the Spirit and all this? If the Spirit's already been active before, why are we waiting for Him to be active now? He, I don't understand. How do we make sense of this? He's already been at work. Well, here's the point, I think. Um, I want you to kind of get this. While there is continuity in the Spirit's work before and after Pentecost, there is stunning contrast. Catch me? So, Spirit's at work before, Spirit is at work after. There's continuity. But man, there is stunning contrast when you compare kind of how he was at work before to how he's at work after. Continuity, but contrast. And we can't err on either side of the matter. On the one hand, we dare not say that the Holy Spirit wasn't at work before Pentecost. Okay? Um, this is the error on the side of contrast, and so miss the continuity. Like, oh, he's only after Jesus. No, he wasn't. You do that, you miss the continuity of the whole story and the work of the Spirit. But on the other hand, neither should we say the Spirit is at work in just the same way after Pentecost. All right? This is actually the error on the side of continuity and miss the contrast. Make no mistake, Jesus' life, death, resurrection and ascension has changed everything for us. Now, that's a significant point of all this. His life, death, resurrection, and ascension has changed everything for us. And yet, it's still, continue, it's still a continuation, and, and it's connected to all that's come before. There's contrast, but there is uh, continuity. The difference, we could say, so far as the Spirit's... Um, uh, activity is concerned. It, it, as we transition from the old to the new, it, it's, it's not so much a difference in um, kind, so much as a difference in degree. Same Holy Spirit working. But if I could give you an image, it's like, it's like on this dimmer switch, right? Where, man, it's the same light, but it's just fizzled down a little lower. A little lower wattage in the Old Testament, all right? And then as Jesus ascends the throne of heaven, it's as if he kind of puts his hands on that switch and he throws that thing forward and all of a sudden the light is just coming out bright and brilliant. It's not a difference in kind. It's the same light, but it's a difference in degree. There's continuity, but stunning contrast. He changes everything, but it's connected to all that's come before. Have I lost you yet? Okay, let me give you another. Did you say yes? <laughs> Let me give you another, another image that may be helpful. Um, so many of you know, uh, last week, 
Um, actually, we, I was in New Orleans. Not for Mardi Gras, by the way. We, we came in. The, it's the only prank Megan had, all right? And we came in the day after Mardi Gras. It was all done. Uh, so the city was disgusting and nasty, filled with all sorts of paper and craziness. But um, Megan had wanted to go to New Orleans for her 40th birthday. This was the only week she had off from her school and teaching and things. And so uh, she wanted to join up with a friend, um, or one of her best friends that's uh, nearby. And we uh, hung out with them. And um, you know, we, we went and checked out the swamps. I mean, that, we're nature people, so we, we love that. The, saw some awesome alligators or, and whatnot. Um, we checked out the city and the jazz. The music was awesome. Uh, one of the cool things was we, uh, you know, when I was, I, you know, I'm kind of cheap, right? I don't, I'm a pastor. I don't have tons of money. Uh, so, you know, I got to get a rental car. It's like, okay, I'm going to get the lame little thing. We don't have kids, so now I don't need a big one, right? So I get this little sedan, coupe, whatever you want to call the thing. And the people, when we get there, go, hey, would you like a Jeep? And I was like, Yes, and it was one of those awesome ones. They just upgraded us where you could pull off the roof, and see so we were cruising around without the roof on and all that. And one of the days I wanted to go, um, I saw at least on the map. I mean, I don't know much about the area, honestly. And so just looking at my Google map, I'm like, dude, there's a huge like lake right here. Let's go check this out. So we're driving. It's like um, sounds like Pontchartrain, like Pontchartrain. I don't know, like Pontchartrain. It's this huge estuary, and. We're driving around. It's beautiful. It's a nice day. And uh, I see this bridge off <coughs> in the distance. And it's kind of, you know, seems to be going on for a little, little ways. And, of course, I'm thinking, we got to go, you know, we got to go check that out. And uh, the car, people in the car were all willing to do it. So we go uh, over. We get on the bridge. I'm hoping maybe it's about, you know, a mile or something. Turns out, I kid you not, it's the, um, it's the longest bridge over a body of water in the world. <laughs> We were on that thing for an hour. It was 24 miles long. It was amazing. It was really cool. Now, I say all this because as I'm driving around uh, this, this lake Pontchartrain, uh, you start seeing, at first you can't even see the thing. I'm going, what is the deal? I can't even see it because they have all these levees all around it. You don't even know it's there. It's like, how do I get a view of the lake? It's like these massive walls, these levees that try to hem in the water of this place. And um, you notice them, especially when you're on the bridge and things, you can see all this. And uh, of course, I'm thinking for some reason at that point, if you guys know the Led Zeppelin song, you know, it's, it's like, if it keeps on raining, the levee's gonna break. Anybody know this? Except he goes, well, if it keeps on, you know, anyways, <laughs> if it keeps on raining, the levee's gonna break, right? And some of you guys know, you know, Hurricane Katrina, 2005, levees broke. Actually, did more research, realized, oh my gosh, it was that lake in particular that started to overflow 80% of New Orleans underwater because the levees broke. Now, that's a negative image. I'm asking you to kind of polish that up a bit and, and, and flip it for me. Let's make it something good because I think we can understand a little bit what, what's happening actually with Jesus. You're wondering, where is he going with this? Uh, with Jesus, as we transition from old to new. And we recognize what's happening with the Holy Spirit. So in, in the Old Testament, Holy Spirit's kind of hemmed in a bit. There's boundaries. A limited people can kind of enjoy the water and all this sort of thing, right? Play in it, uh, get access to it. But it, it, there's boundaries all around it. And, 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 and you can't necessarily, not everyone can get access to it in the same way, right? 
But then with Christ and the cross, with his life, death, and resurrection, man, it's as if, you know, at Calvary, there, the hurricane winds start blowing, and then in, in his resurrection and ascension, it's like the levees break. And the living water of God's presence starts flowing. The Holy Spirit starts coming out. Floodwaters are just spilling over, not just the city of Jerusalem, but Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. It's like this, this picture. Again, it's the same water. But it's like Jesus has just thrown open the gates, turned up the wattage. Whatever image helps you. Broken the levee. The water is spilling out. And sinners are being plunged beneath the flow, coming up saints, washed clean, right? Amazing stuff happening. In a very real sense, um, I think this is likely what's being pictured for us even in the tearing of the curtain at the temple that uh, Luke talks about in Luke 23:45. I mean, the temple had this curtain right to the most holy place where it was like, you don't come in there. Like there's one dude gets to come in there like one day of the year. If he's done everything right, all the sacrifices, all the washings, ah! and then he goes in even still like preparing to die. Like, okay, this could go really bad. Pull me out if I don't, you know, if I don't make it. If you don't hear the little bells on my garments or whatever, it means I got fried by the Holy One. But then when Jesus is on the cross, at Calvary, when he's, when he's there and he breathes his last, we're told that the, 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 the curtain that separated us from God was torn. And the picture, I think, is, man, God is, is it's no longer like us hopefully coming in if we do everything right and all this. It's now God coming out where he was hemmed in before. There were a lot of boundaries and things, and he was still gracious, but but, but man, we also had this emphasis on his holiness and to some degree unapproachability and all of this. Now all of a sudden in Jesus, it's like he is, we, we become the temple. And it's no longer come and, and find him there in Jerusalem. It's he, he's on the move going out to find you. Wherever you are, whatever you've done, the Holy Spirit is with you. See, the, the levy has broken. They've been breached. There's spillover and it's moving towards sinners like you and me. Um, I actually think in our text back in Acts 1, this continuity and contrast is in view when Jesus goes on to mention the difference between his baptism in the Spirit uh, and John's with water. It's interesting that he mentions that there, and I think it's important because it, it actually highlights the continuity between the old and new, and the contrast at the same time. So did you see that, verse 5? For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Again, Acts 1, verse 5. Now, there's continuity between John and Jesus, between the old and the new, right? What Jesus is doing with the dawning of the new era of the Spirit was at the same time still anticipated and prepared for by the old. So John, Luke 3.16, John is on the side with the old, right? He, he didn't make it to Pentecost. His head was lopped off before the Spirit was ever poured out. He's on the side of the old era before the new age of the Spirit that's dawning in Jesus at his resurrection and ascension. 
But even John would say this. He's still anticipating. He's still preparing for it. There's still continuity between his work and Jesus's. Luke 3.16, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, uh, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And it's actually John's baptism that in some ways reveals, right, Jesus as the one who will baptize with the Spirit. It's this baptism in water as Jesus submits to it, the old way, you could say. As Jesus submits to it, he's marked off by the Holy Spirit who falls upon him there as the one who will ultimately baptize not in water but in Spirit. So John would say this in John 1, 32 and 33, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. What I'm trying to get at is there's continuity in the plan. Jesus and the Holy Spirit's work and all this didn't just drop in from nowhere. It's been anticipated and prepared for in the old, and that's pictured with John. As the old is making way for the new, as John is pointing the way towards Jesus. But we also see right within this relationship that there's stunning contrast. So John baptizes with water for repentance. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire, bringing new life and forgiveness of sin and freedom and newfound ways. John's is a baptism of preparation and anticipation. Jesus's is a baptism of arrival and fulfillment. Connected, continuity, but contrast. Dimmer switch thrown up, levy breached, living water flowing in unprecedented ways. This is why Jesus though he clearly thought highly of John, would say this in Luke 7, 28. It's amazing when we consider it uh, for ourselves. But just, he says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. None is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Did you hear that? Among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet even the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. You're like, what does that mean? Well, John's on the side of the old covenant. John's still in the old era before the era and the age of the spirit that's, that's, issued, that, that's uh, brought forth in Jesus. And so John, as great as he was, man, even the least of those who have received the outpouring of the spirit on the day of Pentecost will be considered greater than him because they have more of the power, more of God's glory, more of his strength, more intimacy than John had access to. He just had... You just had the, you know, the, 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 the damned in kind of reservoir there. The boundaries. We have the overflowing spirit of God access all the time. Fullness. Those who live now on the other side of Pentecost, they've transitioned with Jesus from one epoch to the other. And in this sense, surpass John in greatness and in power. And the thing that's amazing is that means for you and I, right? Um, however insignificant, however weak and feeble, however fragile you feel, however like you feel like you're, and we'll talk, talk more about this maybe a little later, but however kind of second class you feel in the kingdom, and you look at John, 
and because of Jesus and because of Pentecost and because of the Spirit you save, I'm esteemed as greater. Not because you are, not because you've done so much more or all of this than John, but because you know his love and you know his power and you know him at deeper levels than John ever did. So the question that we need to ask, and we'll ask this at the end of, of, of every one of these little, you know, sub points, is just, you know, is this what you're experiencing? Are you experiencing the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the, the floodwaters just coming through your life? Have you experienced it? Are you experiencing it? Don't you want to? Don't you want, you know, the levee to break and the water to flow? Consider that. Well, let's keep going. I said I had three questions under this first point. The second question is this. How does the spirit baptism relate to conversion? How does the spirit baptism relate to conversion? So we, we looked at, you know, what the spirit baptism implies about uh, the activity of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. It's continuity, but contrast. Now we move towards how does the spirit baptism relate to conversion? Now let me flesh this out. We know from what Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3 that a person cannot enter nor even see the kingdom of God unless he's born again from above by who? The Holy Spirit. You can't see, you can't enter the kingdom unless you're born again by the Holy Spirit. Now theologians refer to this as regeneration. You could talk about it in terms of conversion, but it's the new birth and it happens by way of the Holy Spirit. All right, And the question then that we have to face at this point now is this. Is this baptism in the Spirit to which Jesus is referring in Acts 1 the same thing as being born again by the Spirit like he talks about in John 3? Is that what the baptism is? It's just, oh, it's me being born again. We talk about born again believers. Is that how you get it? It's the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Or is the baptism something distinct in some way? How are we going to sort all of that out? How do we make sense of that? And now, again, like the similar, or in a similar way to the last issue, um, there are extremes on either side that we need to try to avoid and navigate through, I think. Um, so on the one hand, some overplay the connection between the spirit baptism and conversion, so much so that they virtually just kind of absorb the one into the other and see no distinction at all. So to be baptized in the spirit is to be born in the Spirit. It is regeneration. It is conversion. Nothing more needs to be said about the baptism of the Spirit after that. If you're a Christian, you've been baptized in the Spirit, done. Good. Very, very, very good. We can put that in a nice little box and, you know, we don't have to deal with the Pentecostals anymore. No, I'm just kidding. On the other hand, some overplay the distinction. Some overplay the distinction between being born again by the Spirit, being baptized in the Spirit, to such a degree that they see them as virtually separate and disconnected altogether. Okay? So I just mentioned the Pentecostals. Well, some in that variety, maybe you're familiar with some of the churches. Great stuff. But in my, my view, a little off on, on these things. They would see, um, some at least, would see this baptism in the Spirit as a second experience entirely. Not related to conversion, not Regeneration. In fact, you could be a born-again believer and not baptized in the Spirit. 
how this ends up playing out is it's almost like there's two tiers in the Christian church. There's kind of like an upper echelon, those who have been baptized in the Spirit, and then there's a lower echelon, those who have just been born again by the Spirit. But they haven't quite made it to that level. Now you can see why you're going, oh, I don't want all this theology. Yeah, I get it. But this theology really matters when it comes from the pulpit, and they start telling you that, hey, unless you get this, and unless it looks like this, you haven't reached this. It's an attack, in a sense, on the gospel and all that Jesus accomplished for us when we make these sorts of errors. It can, it, can, it can devastate the soul. So it matters that we look at Scripture and we understand, what, how do these two things relate? Because again, in their view, it's almost like there's this JV team, and then there's this varsity team. You know, you get baptized with the Spirit, now all of a sudden you're like, you know, you're with Tom Brady out there or whatever. He's in retirement, so I guess it doesn't work anymore. But. So what do we make of this now? Um, I happen to think that neither extreme is actually on the mark. The answer is somewhere kind of down the middle, not so much an either or, but a both and if understood properly. And that's what I'll try to show you now. Uh, one of the first issues we have to deal with along the way to an answer here is whether we think the disciples, this is what adds to the confusion, whether we think the disciples were in fact born again before Acts 2 in the day of Pentecost, before the baptism of the Spirit. Were the disciples born again? Were they regenerate believers before that? I wonder what you would say. I, mean, I think it's quite evident, and most uh, people, I think, uh, would assume um, that they are, in fact, uh, born-again believers, you would say, especially once now that we've already um, you know, made plain the fact that the Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament before Pentecost. Uh, I don't think we have a, a problem saying, wait a minute, Okay, we know that they have faith, and we know that faith is a gift of God's grace that's ultimately given by way of his Holy Spirit. And so, man, if they have faith and they're following, and even though, you know, they're not perfect like we aren't either, surely there's evidence of God working in their heart and that they are, in fact, regenerate believers. We know we can't even please God if we're not in the Spirit, Paul says, I think, in 1 Corinthians 2. I could take you to a lot of different verses on this. But one, you know, you can write these down, Matthew 16, 17, John 15, 3, but I'll just show you where Luke kind of gives us a little hint. Luke 24, 52, and 53, this is how he ends his gospel. And he, again, before Pentecost, yet he says this about these disciples, they worshiped him, Jesus, and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So they, they could see the kingdom, they could see, and they were worshiping. And they were filled with joy, which is a fruit of the Spirit, right? And so, clearly, they, they have the marks of regenerate folks. Um, and yet still, we're told that these people need to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So these regenerate, born-again folks need to wait for this baptism, we got to ask, here again, what do we do with that? Does that mean, and this is probably part of the case for the Pentecostal interpretation, does that mean that, that that Pentecostal interpretation is right, that there's a second experience after being born again? And we have evidence here with the disciples. Look, they were regenerate believers, but they hadn't experienced the power of the baptism. I don't want to lose you in all this stuff. 
But let me try to, to make sense of that. Remember the disciples are a fringe case, okay? Remember that the disciples stand in a unique place in redemptive history. What I mean by that is they alone straddle the line between the old covenant and the new, between the old era and the era of the spirit. They alone transition with Jesus from this side of the line to that side of the line, which necessarily means their experience of the spirit is going to be progressive in nature because on this side, is still behind the levees. On this side, the levees broke. But now for you and I, over here, post-Pentecost, it's all levy broke. Right? With me? Which means the disciples' experience of the Spirit is not necessarily uh, paradigmatic or normative for you and I, and we can't look at them and go, ah, born again first, maybe baptized, if we're good enough or whatever. Their situation is unique. It's not the same post-Pentecost. What we see post-Pentecost is actually that this idea of being born in the Spirit and baptized in the Spirit, while there's still distinct ideas and even experiences, you could say, they converge. They converge in, in, in one and the same, you know, in a sense, at least one, at one and the same time. Uh, according to kind of number of texts, what we see is that these experiences, once separated for the disciples, have merged together for subsequent uh, Christians after Pentecost. The two experiences, born again, baptized, can be distinguished, but not divided, is at least what I see in the scriptures. I could give you a bunch of different examples, but we, we see this already at the end of Acts 2. And you could look at that, verses 37 to 38, but I want to take you to Acts 10 because it's, I, I think it's a powerful story. It's Peter with Cornelius and this Gentile and his household, and Peter was sent by God, if you remember, to preach the gospel to this guy and his, and his family, and in verse 44 to 47, we read this. While Peter was still saying these things, the gospel, the, the grace of God as he's preaching, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Did you hear that? They hear, they believe, and they're baptized. Not just in water, but in the Holy Spirit. And these experiences are not separated by days or months or years. It's all happening at once. They're not told, wait around, because Jesus has already poured out the Spirit. The levees have already broken. Access right there. Day one. It's almost as if regeneration opens our hearts up to God, and then the baptism fills us with God, right? But you see the same thing elsewhere in the New Testament, and it seems to be referred to again and again. I'll just read you a couple texts. 
Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The promised Holy Spirit, interestingly enough. That's what Jesus refers to him as. You're going to receive the promised Holy Spirit. How? When you heard and you believed. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5. This one's amazing. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Titus 3, 4 through 6. Listen to this. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out, that's baptism language, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Faith, regeneration, baptism, born again, all these experiences kind of coming in as one. Again, they can be distinguished, but I don't think they can be divided. And I don't think it gets any more plain than Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13, which is the last one I'll just read to you here. I think this puts the matter in the most clear and, and certain terms for us. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13. For just as the body is one. He's talking about the body of Christ, the body that is the church. Just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. You see that? I wish I could spend more time there, but the essence of that is this. If you are in the body of Christ, you have been baptized in the spirit of Christ. That's what he's saying. All, not second level, upper echelon, A team, and then the rest of us, all baptized in the Holy Spirit. If you're in the body of Christ, baptized in the Spirit of Christ. Case closed. As far as I'm concerned, I agree with one scholar's conclusion on the matter. This baptism happens first and most dramatically to the disciples on the day of Pentecost. Since then, it is the birthright of every believer at the very start of a truly Christian life. You with me? So, listen, before I move on, let me press in a little bit more just for you. I don't know if you've ever been told you're a second-class citizen in the church or maybe somebody wouldn't go so far as to do that, but treated like you're a second-class citizen in the church Listen, I mean, I think on the authority of Scripture, and what we just looked at, we can say there is no such thing. You're not. You're not a second-class citizen. You don't get kind of like the, you know, the, all the boundary lines have been divided, or have been destroyed in Christ by His Spirit. 
we tend to think, you know, that God uh, maybe tells some of us, hey, you get kind of the nosebleeds up here, and then I got my VIPs down here. But you want to know what, what, what Paul says in Ephesians 2? He says if we're in Christ, it's as if we've already been raised with Christ and we're seated with him at the right hand of the Father. You get the Son's seat because you have the Son's spirit. Do you understand that? There's no nosebleeds. Like, I think I could see the action. I think they just scored. Like, I don't know because I'm so far away. No, it's intimacy. I mean, front row, down on the court, down on the field, at the table, whatever metaphor you want to use, you're there in the son's seat because you have the son's spirit. There's no second class. All right? And you're there not because you deserve it, not because you belong in and of yourself, but because you've been baptized in the spirit we all have if we've come to Christ. Now, on the other side, though, does this mean there's no place for second experience in the spirit? Does this mean that I, I just said I wasn't going to side with one or the other, but it sounds like I'm just saying, hey, one and done. Conversion, you know, is the same thing as baptism, or at least it happens at the same time, and then we're done with the discussion. Move on. No, actually. I think there is a place for second experiences of the Holy Spirit, just not understood as it moves me up a level, or now I'm a different kind of Christian, or I didn't have it before. Um, I'm not siding with the Pentecostals, but I'm not siding with the other extreme either. I, I think there's clear indication, even within the book of Acts, as we'll see in a moment, that uh, we should be expecting and even pursuing fresh outpourings of the Holy Spirit in our life as we follow Jesus. Not just one and done. I, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, forgive me. It's not, not fully appropriate, all right? <laughs> Nevertheless, this is what I thought of at this moment for some reason, and maybe it's from the Holy Spirit for you. Uh, you remember, if you've seen it, you may remember when uh, Clark is expecting the big bonus to come in, and, and he finally shows up, and he opens the letter, and he's all excited because he's, you know, thinking that it's going to pay for the pool that he's already started putting in, and he's concerned about that, and, 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 and so he opens it up, and he comes to find out that his boss, you know, the frugal and, and cheap, stingy dude that he is, Instead of giving him the normal bonus that's a lot of cash, gives them a, an annual membership to the Jelly of the Month Club or whatever, right? Like, which I looked it up. I guess it's a real thing, you know? You get like a fresh, fresh little jar of jelly every month. And I love this because Uncle Eddie, the guy who's just nuts, in the back goes, trying to reassure him, and I think he genuinely, genuinely was excited about it, says, Clark, now you know that's the gift that keeps giving all year long, Right? Now, that's a joke. That's a joke. But I think it provides a pretty good illustration for what the Holy Spirit is for us. It's the gift of the Spirit. They talk about receiving the gift of the Spirit, the initial baptism that you have in the Spirit, the filling, the power, all of this. But it's the gift that keeps on giving. You're initially baptized, but there are fresh fillings all along the way that we should be pursuing, that we can be expecting, that we should be calling, God, uh, calling out on God for. The gift that keeps on giving initially at regeneration, but then again and again throughout the Christian life. 
You could see this actually happen with the disciples in the book of Acts. It's interesting. I'll, I'll show you here. Let me check the time. Um, their initial baptism is described by all sorts of different things. And I, I list some of this out, it's, you know, in, in ver- different verses. But their initial baptism in the Spirit is described as, you know, the pouring out of the Spirit, the falling of the Spirit, receiving the gift of the Spirit. But one of the things it's also referred to as is, is it, it, we're told that they were filled with the Spirit on that day on Acts 2. So it's the filling of the Spirit as well. And it's that word in particular that, that forges this connection between the initial experience of the baptism and future experiences in the Spirit later on because that word is used time and again with these disciples. These same disciples who are already filled are going to be filled again and again and again by the Holy Spirit. So Acts 4.8, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he speaks boldly to the religious powers that be. Acts 4.31, we've looked at this in times past. The disciples are scared because of opposition and persecution. They pray, they gather, they pray, they wait on God. And then then we read this in um, verse 31. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You just do a word study on this filling or filled and, and you'll see it. Paul is filled the day that, you know, um, he's prayed for and the scales fall from his eyes. You could call that his baptism in the Spirit, if you will. But then we're told later on that he's filled with the Spirit again while he's ministering out and about on his missionary journeys. So there's an initial filling. You might call it baptism. And then there are subsequent fillings. Some people call it baptism, a fresh baptism. I'd probably prefer to go with what the scriptures seem to call it, which is more being filled, but I'm okay either way. The idea is it's the gift that keeps on giving. The gift of the Holy Spirit. This baptism then is not so distinguished from conversion as to be secondary and separated from it, nor is it so connected to conversion as to be merely absorbed and conflated with it. It's the gift that keeps on giving. And we ought to be pursuing it. This is why Paul in Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's talking to believers who've already experienced the Spirit, already been sealed in the Spirit. We've already looked at a few verses from Ephesians, and yet he says, Be filled with the Spirit. So again, the question for us, are you experiencing this? Don't you want to? But we move on. I said I have a third sub-question under this heading. Now I'm going to start moving quick, so don't worry. What does this baptism in the Spirit affect in a person's life? I just want to touch on that momentarily. What does it affect in a person's life? In other words, why do we even want it in the first place? What does it do? What does this mean? I cannot talk about tongues right now. That would be a whole other like mini-series, all right? We'll, we'll get to that later and the whole gift of tongues, and the talking in tongues, and all that. What I want to do is quickly give you three effects of this baptism, and and, and kind of subsequent fillings as well in the Spirit. Um, One effect, power. Power. I'm going to draw it straight from what we see in the book of Acts and things. Um, First, power. There's this uncharacteristic power for effective ministry and the advancement of God's kingdom. And so you see that in what Paul, or what Peter, or I'm sorry, what Jesus says clearly. Acts 1 verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witness. 
power for ministry and the advancement of the kingdom. God's glory. Same thing in the summary of the statement in Luke 24, 49, when he's talking to his disciples about the same stuff. And there's, here's how it's described. Uh, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So there's power here. Let me ask you, do you feel weak? Do you feel feeble? Do you feel unable? Do you feel cowardly? In and of yourself, you are. But the wonderful thing about the gospel and the outpouring of the Spirit is he doesn't expect you to have it in yourself. He wants to give it. We need the Holy Spirit. We need fresh outpourings. But the Spirit does more than just uh, give us power. It also leads us to praise. Effect number two, praise. So power, but not just unbridled power like, you know, like Paul Walton on his contracting jobs, lifting logs or whatever. That's not the power. It's power to praise ultimately. <laughs> uh, it's power to praise. And so that's what we see. I mean, Acts 2. The Spirit falls in other places, but Acts 2, Spirit, spirit falls, and, 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 and we get make a big deal about tongues. They're speaking in tongues. Whoa, what is that tongues? We miss what those tongues are even all about and what they're saying in those different languages. You ever catch this? Verse 11, Acts 2. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. They're amazed with God in this moment. They're declaring the glory of God in this moment. Power and praise. Not just unbridled power to go off and you know, do amazing feats, but power to praise and bring glory to him. Right? Stemming forth from adoration and love. In Acts 10, 46, it's the same thing we saw. When the Spirit falls upon those Gentiles, they start speaking in tongues, but what are we told that they're doing? They're extolling God. It's not just, wow, he recited the whole alphabet in, you know, Spanish. He didn't know that before. No, it's, they're, they're, they're using these tongues and they're praising God, extolling him. So I wonder, you know, you're given more to grumbling than gratitude. I wonder how your praise has been lately. Has it been just discontent and complaining? Listen, you don't have it in and of yourself to just muscle up and, you know, start a thankful journal. <laughs> that's good. I am thankful for, oh! you know, that's okay. But you need, you need the Holy Spirit. You need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit to truly see. And this, I think, is all stemming out from one last thing I'd give you, which is effect number three. It's this idea of pleasure, actually. Satisfaction in God. You see, all this stems out from that, that Jesus is, is moving on the hearts of his people. They're not, you know, forced to go out. He's not like, you will praise me, like forcing the mouth open. They want to because they've seen something, because they've got something. The Holy Spirit helps us see. It's amazing. Acts, um, uh, where am I? Acts 13.52. It's so cool. Uh, these disciples there in Antioch and Pisidia, they were filled with joy, we're told, and with the Holy Spirit. It's like a package deal. Filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Same verb, but two different things. They're connected. 
Romans 5, it's amazing. 5, 5, he says this, Paul does. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So here's what happens. Holy Spirit is poured out upon us and we get a sense of God's love. We're filled with joy. We're, we're amazed that we are in his kingdom, in his family, that we are forgiven and loved. That no matter what's coming our way, it's going to go well for us. We stand in awe of the reality of the gospel. We're filled with, with that sort of pleasure. It overflows in praise, and we go out in power, minister to others. So I wonder... When's the last time you were struck speechless at the foot of the cross? When's the last time you really took it in like, I cannot believe it in view of my sins. How in the world does God want me? How could he love me? In view of all the ways I've screwed up, why would Jesus take that on his back and go to Calvary and carry that for me? He's baptized into death, he would say so that we could be baptized in the Spirit. Why? I can't give a reason. And when the Spirit is, is poured out on you, man, you're struck by it. You're in awe of it. You can't make that happen. You need the Holy Spirit. Fresh fillings, if you will. Or maybe for the first time. So again, are you experiencing anything like this? Power, praise, pleasure, that sort of stuff. Are you experiencing anything like this? Don't you want to? How do we get it? And here's where the plane just, boom, about to come out of the air right now. Don't worry. Okay, yeah. How do we get it? So I looked at what does it mean? I just want to spend a moment on how do we get it? We'll probably come back to these things again and again later, but I've talked about some of this before even, so I'll go fast, but I want to give you at least some things to consider as you go out from here. And I want that. What do I do to get it? Let me draw out four steps from what we see even in Acts 1 um, um, and, and try to make sense of it for you. Step number one, hear the word. Step number one, hear the word. I mean, sometimes you hear people say, ah, you know, you got those dead orthodoxy churches. They believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible, right? We have the Spirit. And they never open their Bible. That's crusty doctrine. I'm telling you, read the book of Acts. It's the complete opposite. We looked at Ezekiel 37 last time. That's what you see. Preach, prophesy to the dry bones, and the Spirit comes in. And it's that way time and again. You saw that in Acts 10. As they heard, the Spirit fell. And that's what's there in Acts 1. They have the promise. They have the word from Jesus. And it begins there, right? It's the word. So I just tell you, I mean, just to put it bluntly, uh, if you want to put yourself in the way of the Spirit, you have to put yourself in the words of the Bible. And if you are not attending to the word of God, you cannot expect to be filled with the Spirit of God, Period. Period. Open your Bible. It's the first step to kind of opening the door for the Spirit's work in your heart. Step number two, wait for God. Jesus tells these disciples to wait. Obviously, it's a little different now for us than it was for them. But nonetheless, I think the principle still stands. Like we just are so prone to run off. We don't have time to wait. 
I got my own thing. I got my plan. I got this, God. We still do that today. And we don't wait for the Spirit to come because we're already off over there. So, okay. So there's this idea of waiting, like getting on our faces, just opening up our empty hands. We hear his word. We wait for God. Third, we pray with passion. You don't just wait and do nothing. You pray. Prayer is kind of the bridge between, you know, God's sovereign grace and our activity and responsibility. We don't say, he says this, therefore we do it. We say, he says this, therefore God help us do it. Prayer is in the middle. Prayer with passion. And so these disciples in Acts 1, uh, we'll see they're in the upper room and they're praying, devoting themselves to prayer, calling on God to make good on his promise. Jesus, you said you're coming. Where are you? It's been five days, six days, seven days, eight days, nine days, and on the tenth day comes, but they're praying. And so we open God's word and we wait for him and we pray his word back to him. God, I need your help. God, change me. God, you know, give me power for witness. God, help me to want to praise. I just feel like grumbling. God, please show me your love. I feel dead and hard and callous, but I see it, but I need you. Pray with passion. And then finally, we get ready to go. Step number four, get ready to go. And this one, I just wanted to sit for one minute. Because here's what you notice with these disciples. It's amazing. I mean, they're not just there to get an experience from the Spirit and then go, whoa, wasn't that awesome? Can't wait for next Sunday. That was a good one, right? Like the Holy Spirit gave me chill bumps. Do you get chill bumps? Right? Like what an awesome worship set. Spirit was there. No, 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 no. They're not just after the experience. They want the Spirit to come so they can go out on mission, they are ready to go. And that's what I want us to understand. I think, I think one of the steps that we miss is that we've got to be ready to go. We pursue God with a willingness and a surrender that says, hey, it's not just about me and you time. Like, that's fine, right? He wants to fill you up with the knowledge of his love, but he wants to, he wants to, to, to have you flow out. And if we are unwilling to go, we will find very quickly that the spirit stops flowing, that there's no more pouring out. It's as we're willing to go, I think, that God meets us, man, and he blesses us. And so we get ready to go. It's not just about the experience. It's about wanting to live on mission, wanting him to have us all, wanting him to take our story and write it, right? So we just say, God, take us. I'm not a a, a dam of your grace. I'm a conduit of it. Pour out on me, so I pour out on others. You have that kind of attitude. That's why you're crying out for the Spirit. That's why you got open hands on the floor. That's why you're in the Bible. And He will come and He will fill you afresh. Right? So, bottom line is this Jesus has broken down every barrier to make this possible for us. Sometimes we find we've built up our own little barriers. Keep him at a distance, keep him in a box, keep him hemmed in behind a levee. I don't want the crazy. I'm just saying, let's just lay it all down right now. You know? Let's seek him together. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the gift that keeps on giving, God. That for some of us, it may be that we've never come to you and received it, repented and, and, and received your forgiveness and the fullness of the Spirit. Maybe today is the day 
But for others of us, perhaps we've received it and yet we're, we're feeling dry and dead and struggling. God, we pray that you would come and pour out your spirit afresh in this place. Not because we're worthy of it, but because you've promised it. On the basis of your word to us, Lord, your grace, we don't claim, we don't claim these things in virtue of our own righteousness, but on the basis of Jesus and his. And so meet us, Lord. We seek you now together. It's in your name we pray. Amen.